Thank you for downloading episode two of No Planet B with Gemma Arrowsmith. If you're listening to this episode before May the 24th, 2019, you should know that that Friday we'll see a global strike for climate. Look out for climate marches, protests, talks and events taking place near you. A week later, on May the 31st, I will be appearing on Radio 4 Extra's podcast radio hour to talk about No Planet B. So do tune in for that or find it on the BBC Sounds app. On with episode two. Welcome to your information pod. Please select your subject of study. You have chosen Earthrise. On the 24th of December 1968, astronaut William Anders was in orbit around Earth's moon as part of the Apollo 8 mission. He took a photograph of the Earth rising above the horizon of the moon's surface. The photograph of the Earth hanging in space, alone and vulnerable, became known as Earthrise and is often cited as the beginning of the environmental movement. Wilderness photographer Galen Rowell described it as the most influential environmental photograph ever taken. For the first time, humanity saw themselves from a distance aboard one exquisite, fragile planet with limited resources and no one coming to help. If Spaceship Earth were to continue, it would require all of humanity pulling together for the greater good. Within three years of the photograph being taken, both Greenpeace and Friends of the Earth were founded, and within three years and one day, the first person had called them a bunch of bloody hippies. If you're a fan of mudslinging and abuse, then it's been a great month to be on Twitter. Like every other month, to be honest. Why are you on Twitter? What possible good can come of it? Why am I on Twitter, for that matter? Last month, Extinction Rebellion occupied five locations in London, and within eight days, over a thousand arrests were made. This prompted a slew of comments on social media that the protesters were unwashed, jobless, and that tired adage, in need of a haircut. Then Emma Thompson joined the protest aboard the big pink boat at Oxford Circus, and that prompted a new type of comment that the protesters were hypocrites, participating in the very system they're protesting. I bet they didn't walk to this protest, they used trains and buses. I saw one of them drinking a coffee. You can't win. If you live entirely off-grid, eat a completely plant-based diet and walk or cycle everywhere, you're dismissed as a hippie and told to get a haircut, have a bath and get a job. If you do those things, you're then accused of hypocrisy because you're participating in the very system you're criticising. I'm starting to think these people on Twitter aren't interested in constructive debate at all and just like hurling abuse at people. I went and chatted to a whole load of protesters at the Marble Arch and Oxford Circus sites and there were people there from all walks of life. I spoke to a man in a three-piece pinstripe suit, a scientist who studies mosquitoes, families there with their kids. It's very lazy and just plain inaccurate to dismiss everyone there as a hippie. Not that there's anything wrong with being a hippie, I just don't suit tie-dye and corduroy so it's not for me. I do need a haircut but that's more of a time management issue. The situation really reached ahead when abuse started to be thrown at National Treasure Sir David Attenborough over his programme Climate Change The Facts, and also at increasingly international treasure Greta Thunberg, the 16-year-old climate activist who came to the UK and addressed Parliament. Imagine typing out a personal attack on respected naturalist David Attenborough, or an autistic teenager who wants to save the planet, and at no point wondering whether maybe you're the bad guy. When I was writing this episode of the show, I tweeted a photo of my desk with my laptop showing the half-written script, and I found myself worrying whether some incredibly incisive Twitter user would wander into the replies like, 
She says she cares about the environment, but here she is using electricity to power her laptop so she can write and see the things around her. Why can't she put her money where her mouth is and live without electricity? I don't really think I can make a podcast without using electricity at all. That's another thing. Every single one of your listeners is having to use power to listen to this programme, so you're encouraging energy wastage as well. Why can't you distribute it using means that don't use energy? How would I do that? That's not my problem, sweetheart. I'm not saying I have all the answers, just pointing out the flaws in your logic, sunshine. Okay, I could print the text of the podcast up on a pamphlet and distribute that. And use all those trees to make the paper. Fine, I could also plant trees so it would be carbon neutral. And how, pray, would you distribute these pamphlets? Using cars? No, no, I don't have a car. I'd use public transport. Oh, and I suppose buses and trains run on rainbows, do they? Okay, forget the pamphlets. Let's go back to the spoken word. I could tell people, in person, go around the country doing a live show. Uh, And how are you getting around the country? (sighs) Fine, I'll just do it in my nearest city. In theatres and venues lighting you with electricity, I suppose. Okay, I'd just do it outside. I'd be lit by the sun. Using a microphone and a PA? No, okay, I'd use a megaphone. Oof, lithium batteries, very tricky to recycle. Counts as hazardous waste. Fine, no amplification then. I'll just use my voice. I'm in a park, lit by the sun, reading out the script using just my voice. I'll power my body using a plant-based diet. Uh, I think locally sourced plants and I'll walk to and from the park. How's that? See, that's got you, hasn't it? (sighs) Hippie. The fact is, we all participate in a system which pollutes and damages the planet. All we can do is take action to minimise that and ask policymakers to do the same, but on a much bigger scale. But as a tonic to all the opprobrium on social media, this episode of No Planet B is all about positivity. Here's an initial bit of positive news to get you started. Over the Easter weekend, the UK was coal-free for more than 90 hours. Duncan Burt, the Director of Operations at the National Grid, said it marked another significant step towards a zero-carbon power grid in the UK. He continued, We've run on coal since the Industrial Revolution, but that is now changing. There's been a steady decline in coal usage since 2010, and we expect to see it gone completely by 2025. This weekend saw a big input from solar energy. It topped out just above 25%. Support Solar is one of 1010 Climate Action's current campaigns. Their first campaign was to unite the UK around one goal, to cut carbon emissions by 10% in 2010, hence the name 1010. Since then, they've helped people take practical action on climate change. Their website proudly states, we believe progress is possible and good things can work. We show our optimism by taking action and helping others to do the same. I spoke to their Director of Communications, Alice Bell, about their campaigns. So I am Alice Bell and I am one of the co-directors at 1010 Climate Action. One of the things we did was have an amazing project called Solar Schools, which is pretty much what it sounds like. Um, We help schools go solar. And the methods that we used for doing that were ones that were copied by several different countries. Um, They were inspiration for the Solar Schools programme in the US. We worked with people in Australia and Chile and all sorts of different places um, who've been interested in that. Some of the things we do are very British, um, but often they're scalable. We're working on a project at the moment um, to get our railways to to be powered by solar power. So it's such a lovely story because it comes out of um, a group in... Sussex. People have either heard of the village of Borkham because they've taken the London to Brighton train and it goes through it. If you've ever been on that train and gone, wow, that's a beautiful viaduct, that's probably Borkham. Um, but it's a very small little village. But it was famous a few years ago as the first place they started to test fracking in the UK. 
became the fracking village. So protesters and media people and anyone who loved or hated fracking kind of fell into this tiny little village. They got poor people got completely disrupted by the whole um, hoo-ha around around fracking. Um, and they were very bruised by the experience. It really divided the village. Um, but it got the, a lot of them really interested in energy issues, which are issues that most of us get to ignore. And what we found is though fracking really divided that village, um, when we started to talk to them about uh, other groups in the local area that had done community solar, so it's not just solar, but community owned, so they'd have control and ownership of their en energy rather than it being a company coming in with their drills. Um, they, they, that could bring them together. So they got really excited about it. They did this amazing project. Where they built a solar farm that matched the electrical demand of their village and the village next door. They're inspiring, incredibly inspiring. <laughs> and along the way, they also invented solar powered trains. Because um, they were basically, they were like, where can we put our solar farm? And they couldn't work out where to put it. And then they were like, well, where can we put it over there? And then we could maybe just power the trains. Because the village is literally by, it's like, it's by, it's bisected. It's split in two by the trains. It's very, it's very much on the, kind of, there's a lot of people who live in that area who commute to London it's, it's on this big busy London to Brighton railway so railways are very present in the area and they've got this beautiful viaduct and um, they thought well, we could just plug in power the trains and so they asked a local electrical engineer professor of energy futures who happened to live nearby who worked in London and he was like well in theory you could but no one really kind of done it and he sort of said a lot of engineering stuff that we sort of went away and looked up and then we thought well because the government had cut solar so much by then, this is after 2015, they just des literally decimated the UK solar industry and that one in 10 people lost their job, it was just destroyed. Um, there, were a lot, there were much fewer opportunities for us to do amazing projects like this community solar one, so we were looking at new opportunities that we could go into. Um, so we thought, so we're digging this solar trains idea and they've basically, we're pretty hopeful uh, that we'll have solar powered trains in a year or so and it all came out of their work, which they we did a research project with Imperial, it was co-produced by community energy groups in the southeast of England um, and researchers at Imperial. It's a beautiful story of like communities and experts working together to build a world leading piece of technology. Anyway, the point of all of this is it will also be applicable all over the world. So again, it's something that's grown in Britain, but... Um, it's not just a British story and it, I hope it won't continue to just be a British story. I'm, I'm really excited about like other cities and countries going, oh, we could use this for our trams or our trains and maybe taking it in a whole other direction and improving the technology too. Just like the people in Balkan were like, oh, we could do this. And they created something in just a few years. It'll be amazing to see how it goes, where it travels around the world. The solar schools project we had was so wonderful. And it was really one of the things we really noticed was that it brought communities together. And so schools would sign up to do it, not just because they wanted to go solar, but they knew it was going to be great for their school for so many other ways. Um, some of the smaller schools we work with were like, this really helped boost awareness of our school and uh, like it helped save the school because we were threatened with closure and um, we'd have people saying, oh, it meant I could get engaged with my old school that I went to because I was helping fundraise them to go solar. It just helped. People have a community around a school anyway, but people often lose touch with their old school or they work near it but don't have a kid so don't engage with it but it helped bring people together around the school and it, we'd find that a school would do it and then a school nearby would be like can we do it next year and then it had to close because of the solar cuts and it's, it's so it's exciting to see solar schools in other countries and there are still some schools that in the right conditions have managed to go solar since although they would struggle to go solar as of yesterday just this week where um We've had another stage of solar cuts, basically. Can you talk about these solar cuts? Because it's something I know nothing about. So, yeah, yeah can you fill me in? Uh, so, um, 
One of the ways, so the government um, supports all forms of energy generation. They, in fact, in the UK, they support oil and gas quite a lot. Um, we often get told off or put on lists of countries that support their oil and gas and we come quite high. Um, uh, so it's, it's normal to support solar and wind. Um, we have different ways of doing that, though, and there's different ways that you can support the generation of wind or solar that would either give money to people who want to do big projects or people who might want to do small ones. And so um, we had what was known as the feed-in tariff, which basically is that if you had small-scale renewables projects, like your own one wind turbine in a field that a community might have collected together to build or a farmer might have bought themselves, um, or just a, a solar on your roof, and it might just be a few tiles on a, a few panels on a, on a domestic roof or it might be a lot on a school and again we'd have community owned ones so some amazing projects in Brixton and Hackney that have got community solar on social housing um, so you, anyway you can have you have your sort of not a whole field of solar panels and not one company that owns solar panels around the world but just a guy who likes solar panels and maybe some of his mates that they've got together and they bought some solar panels, they can still get support from the government through the feed-in tariff. And so you generate electricity for your home or your school or whatever, and then any extra electricity that you generate, you get a bit of money for to feed into the grid. It's, I mean, it's called, a, it's called an export. It, there's lots of different words for it, but it's like an export tariff, you get a bit of money for it. Anyway, there were subsidies that worked that the government would pay people to have solar. And that helped grow the UK solar industry. It was also a really good way of engaging the public with renewable energy. Because one way of doing it is to say, just the big guys do it, they come in and they build the giant farms and the big wind farms, the big solar farms. And often communities feel very alienated by that because especially if you live in a rural area where you're seeing a lot of this popping up, you're like, oh, you're changing my environment. And I don't, I mean, maybe some people have some jobs, that's good, but I you know, don't really feel involved in it. Um, but this gives a chance for everyone you know, everyone to play a role in what we might geekily call the low carbon transition. And, and they like, have the benefits. It is amazing. Like solar panels are incredible. They were like for years that like, we, we first started doing solar like energy in like the 1860s or something. And the first solar panels were like developed kind of from the 1880s over the, over the turn of the century and all the way through the 20th century. And then NASA were like, this is a silly idea in the, in on Earth, but like in space, this is great. And so they put loads of money into solar panels, and we had the first solar-powered satellites in the 1960s. Um, and then they were so good that they were technologies that you could put on houses. And so we have this incredible space technology, like NASA technology, that we can all own. And now they've just they cut they massively cut this subsidy very very drastically, very very quickly in 2015. Um, and lots of people lost their jobs and the kind of ability for us to have a functioning solar industry started to uh, fall. So people who want to do solar, it's really struggled. So some people have managed to make solar work in the UK since, um, and they just cut the last bit. So you can have, the dream is that you'll have like subsidy free renewable energy. So wind and solar can be done without the need of subsidies. And unlike oil and gas, that is true. Like this will happen. It already you can have in some instances, subsidy free solar and wind. Um, but the government was like, we're going to just cut it because you should be able to stand on your own two feet, which is fair enough, but you kind of need some support to get there. And they cut it off too early. So we could be in the next couple of years where we could have had subsidy free solar. We could have got to a position where 
people around the country were really engaged with solar. Everyone knew a local solar school, wanted their school to go solar. We had loads of people who were trained in solar installation. This project in Brixton that I mentioned that does solar in community in social housing, one of the first things they do is they get young people in the area trained up as interns and train them to install the solar themselves on their roofs. Like we could have had these kids that have been trained by those projects would be then, you know, into their 20s and developing their career and be ready to really maximise that opportunity. But because they cut it when they did, we're now like struggling thinking, oh, so maybe in a few years we can start to do that, but it might be a bit late. And the other problem is, is that it, it kind of meant that the people who are going to develop renewable energy tend to be the people who've already got quite a lot of money, which is not a bad... We need them too, but I think if we're going to do renewable energy well, we need more of a diversity of different people doing stuff. And I worry a bit about what that means for economic equality in the way that we do renewable energy. But this is... I mean, wind is a whole other issue because it's very difficult through the planning uh, laws to even build a wind turbine, even if you could make it work economically. And I mean, wind is so cheap that actually we could be doing it without subsidy and we could be having wind power schools and that would be great. And there's lots of communities around the country that want to do that, but they can't because the government has made it very difficult to build wind turbines in England. Scalpel. Thank you. Now, as you can see, the aortic valve is inflamed, as expected. This is consistent with stenosis. Separating fused valve cusps is not an option, as you can see, so we are going to go ahead and replace the valve. Ooh, is there any point, though, really? I'm sorry, are you one of the medical students? Oh, no, I'm not a doctor or anything, but I just thought I'd come in and point out that loads of people have heart problems. So is there any point doing this operation on just one person? It's not really making a big difference, is it? Ah, uh, yes, I heard about this. The hospital is employing a resident naysayer who will come into the operating theatres to foster debate and create balance? Yeah, it's really rude only having people who know about medicine in hospitals. <laughs> okay, so we're using a mechanical valve as per the patient's request. Um, I wouldn't have done that. I would have advised the patient to go with an animal heart valve or just essential oils. Do they even need an operation? Sorry, could you just... I mean, why are you even here doing an operation in Britain? There are loads of people in China that need this operation. Seems like a waste of everyone's time even bothering to do it here. What difference will it make? Well, it's going to make a big difference to this person's life. Yeah, and that person might be terrible for all you know. Look, it's my job as a surgeon to uphold the Hippocratic Oath, to save life and do no harm. <laughs> and you can stop all that virtue signalling. You surgeons are complete hypocrites. You say you won't do any harm and yet I know for a fact that you bent your little sister's finger really far back when you were on holiday in Devon in 1988. Um, exactly. So don't pretend you're so great. You're not better than me. Okay, so I'm going to make an incision. I wouldn't do it like that. At the base of the valve. Don't see the point. If we could check the extracorporeal circulation. Waste of time. And double check the patient's notes for any previous cardiomyopathy. Probably made up. Can we get this person out of the operating theatre, please? Oh, yeah. This is just typical of you experts. You don't like healthy debate. Get off me! Um, this is actually a huge infringement on my freedom of speech. <laughs> Back to my interview with Alice Bell from 1010 Climate Action. So heat pumps are like my new favourite thing. Um, a few years ago someone came into work and were like, we need to do stuff about heat pumps and it was like a heat what? And they were like, heat pumps, you live in the city, you don't understand heat pumps, people in rural areas have been up for heat pumps for ages and I was like, I'm sure I've been to the countryside, no idea what you're talking about. Anyway, basically um, heat pumps are kind of like reverse fridges. And so they can make heat, just like you can put a fridge somewhere that's not very cold and it makes cold. You can put a heat pump somewhere that's not very hot, but it makes like a lot of hot. In fact, 
they kind of discovered heat pumps when someone accidentally burnt themselves on the back of a fridge because you know fridges have to get hot in order to make the cold it's sort of sort of this is the other way around for, for a heat pump and you can have heat pumps that work they're called air source so the room that we're in now isn't super hot but if we had a heat pump in it it could take some heat from it and, and make more hot and make us warm so you can have an air source heat pump that instead of having a radiator that probably in the uk would ultimately run from gas you could have an electric electrically powered heat pump um, and if you've got it plugged into a solar panel then it's totally renewable and yeah, it could take from air. You can have ground source ones, which are the ones that you see more in rural areas because they need quite a lot of space. So like if you've got a big garden, you might be able to get a heat pump um, under it. Um, and you can have water source. So you can put them into sewers. We've been doing this thing with lost, the Lost Rivers of London, which actually are sewers. Um, but it's more romantic to call them Lost Rivers. Um, and you can put, so you can put a water source heat pump in a, in a sewer or a, a, any kind of bit of water, a stream or something, and it can be used to heat and cool your building. One of the beautiful things about heat pumps is they can offer you cooling as well as heating. And that's really important for us as we think about climate change, because we're going to need to think about how, particularly in the UK, where we haven't need to worry too much about it getting too hot, we're going to need to think about how we can have systems that will keep us cool for a couple of weeks of the year where it's too hot, as well as warm for large chunks of the year where we need a bit of heating. Um, so there's buildings, around London you'll see a if you talk to sustainability people in large buildings, they might have a heat pump. Like a pub in London called Seckford that has a water source heat pump in an old well that they found. And you can actually see it because the way they've built the, the pub is they put some glass panelling over their heat pump so you can see their heat pump. <laughs> and it's just a little machine and a bit of water. Uh, but it, it extracts heat from, from the water. Uh, or turn, it manages to make heat using the water and um, it heats the water in the building. So if you go and wash your hands... That'll be why it's warm. And it also cools the beer and wine, which is lovely. Um, but we could have heat pumps all over, um, we could have them all over London. And we certainly could be making use of all these uh, waterways that run under the, under the city. Um, there's lots of, of scope for that. So we did some scoping of various buildings that we knew happened to be situated over the kind of buried rivers of London, um, over the fleet or the Ephra, and how they could be plugged into to having renewable heat using... A heat pump um, but we've also got a project with Hackney Council using ground source heat pumps um, because although we can't normally have heat pumps in urban areas because people's gardens aren't big enough parks are big and um, one of the things we really like about parks is their social spaces that lots of people have forms of ownership over and will hang out in and talk in so we could do a project working with the local community and ask them first do you want heat pumps in your park and if they like the idea, they think about where they put them and what time of year we might have the small amount of disruption that would be involved to lay them. Um, but then they'd make money out of um, generating the heat because they'd be able to sell that heat to local businesses and homes. And then the park would have a whole uh, revenue stream. And we know parks, anyone who lives near a park in the UK will know this. <laughs> the parks keep getting shut or like half of them are closed down because there's like a festival and like... That's annoying, but maybe your park could just have minor disruption while they put on um, some heat pumps and then for summers to come, you will have the park just for you and there'll be like a whole new football club and beekeeping workshops and stuff that'll be funded off your uh, heat pumps. And we really like this idea because then we could work with like park user groups and they could decide what the money was spent on and they could have control over it. And also people who live in an urban environment could have a role in thinking about decarbonisation of heat, which they wouldn't otherwise be able to do. Because um, it can lead to other conversations about, do we want to build something like a heat network, 
which would be like a way of linking together buildings where they share heat and share a boiler or share some massive heat pump or something. Um, there's lots of different things we're going to have to do if we want to decarbonise heat. We all need to have conversations about what we want to do to make those choices and make sure they're ones that we're happy with and fit with our lives. So we need to find ways to engage people about heat, so that's why we love parks, because people hang out in them. I'm really hopeful about that project. We're going to try and, I think, have a report out in a few months about it, and we're certainly doing testing with Hackney. Hackney Council are really excited about it as well. Um, so we'll see how that goes. We could have them in like sports centres as well, so if you're relaying a football pitch, while you're relaying the football pitch, you can put heat pumps down, and then all the heating in the football pitch could be run off this thing, and we wouldn't need to be plugged into the gas network, and then we could save the gas for when we need gas, in the places that do need gas, or get off gas. It's exciting. Working with communities, so at 1010, most of what, virtually all the stuff that we do is about bringing people together as a, as a community. It might be a community of place or a community of interest. It could be a people who like just hang out because they're all interested in the same thing rather than that they live in the same area. But bringing people together as a group to do stuff. And I, when I started working here, I thought that was an important part of climate action, which is why I wanted to work here. But it was the thing that started to get me more... Uh, sort of lifted my mood I suppose um, it is very enriching I suppose to be part of a group of people taking action on climate change um, and to see their enthusiasm and to see their drive and to see their ideas like to see things like a group in Borkham go right we're not just going to take fracking we're going to have community solar and we're going to invent solar powered trains in the process you know to see something like that is very inspiring and shows it makes me reminds me that People are basically decent and very clever and motivated and can can get it done even when... Um, so I used to work much more in science and policy and you sort of look at politicians not doing stuff and it can be very, very depressing. Uh, and to shift then to working with everyday people, some of whom are incredibly expert, um, getting rolling their sleeves up and getting stuff done. Um, that's what, if I'm feeling depressed, if I go out on a committee group and... We did some tree planting a couple of months ago and we all came away just like, oh, we have hope. <laughs> we sort of start the year, everyone start every climate activist starts the year very depressed. Um, and uh, we kind of came away from the tree planting sort of feeling uh, like, we can do this, we can do this. All right, we are, today we only planted this number of trees and it's not going to solve all of our problems, but we know that we can do this sort of thing all over the place and we're going to do our heat pump projects and our solar projects and our wind projects and all of these things together will start to make a difference. Um, uh, so yeah, that, I think it's, it's the community work that it's not in itself going to solve all of our problems, but it's key and it, it does, it lifts my spirits. With every sort of stage we go of having failed on climate change, there's still so much more that we can still achieve, um, which can be slippery and complicated and does make the issue sometimes tricky emotionally to work in. But I do find it still always means there's hope in a way that there isn't for some issues. You're like, oh, well, we didn't, we failed at this and we just failed like well we failed at this and this and this but we're going to still fight on this and this and this and this there's always something to fight for um and although the space for our ability to act is getting smaller and smaller very rapidly and really the time is now to work to act um it's still there and it will still continue to be there as it gets smaller for a little bit more to come it, it, i mean not forever but we still have space to act now um i've got a colleague who sometimes says like you know, we get to be the heroes and like save, you know, we don't, well, we get to be the heroes and, you know, take action on climate change. It's kind of awful that we have been delivered this responsibility by generations before us, that we have inherited this mess, but we get to do it. So, and we have to do it. So 
let's get on, on, on work. And there's nothing, although climate change is depressing, there's nothing that says that taking action on it has to be. Um, one of the reasons we, why we emphasise positivity and we try and have fun when we do action on climate change um, is that we know people will work harder if they have fun while they're doing it. So like, we do things like solar schools, um, which are serious, uh, but also allow us to do things like say, hey kids, what do you want to do to fundraise for solar panels? And they say, well, I want to play ping pong or sit in a bath of baked beans. And we go, all right, if that's what you really want to do. If people are thinking, I don't know what to do about climate change, um, they can check out, we've got a set of resources called Climate Crush, which has got just different spaces that people, different parts of your life, just like boringly heating or lighting, but just click on something that you think, oh, I might be able to do something there. And then there's, for each of those, we've got something you can do on your own, something that you can do with others, and then how you can start to take action on a more political level for all of them as well. And you can think about like, oh, I'm a DIY person, I might do something like this, or I'm like a crafty person, I might do that, or I just really love cooking, or I really like travel, or I like fixing stuff, and you can find something as a place to start. And so it's important people know that it's going to be the start of a journey, because just uh, using really usable plastic bags is not going to cut it. Um, or like, yeah, it's great you've changed the renewable energy supply, but don't use the money you save to go on an aeroplane flight. Like people need, it's, we need drastic action, which is going to be a lot more than just like a little lifestyle fix, but they are good places to start. Um, and if you start somewhere and get enthused about something and start getting other people enthused about it and start to build a movement, I think we've seen from things like plastics, action on plastics, that can have massive impact quite quickly. When you read the dire warnings from climate scientists, you might feel hopeless and wonder what you can possibly do to help. That very question, what can I do to help, is what kickstarted the charity 1010 Climate Action into life in 2009. The team behind the climate change themed film The Age of Stupid, starring Pete Postlethwaite, were asked after every screening, what can I do to help? It became clear that people wanted something positive and practical that could make a real difference. 1010 Climate Action was born out of that. So, in the age of endless negativity, I suppose my best advice would be to stop looking at social media with all its naysaying and personal attacks. Put down your phone, pick up your phone and get the details of 1010 Climate Action from their website because where else are you going to get that information? Right off for a prospectus. Then put down the phone again and pick up a trowel. Start planting trees. You can get involved with 1010 Climate Action by heading to their website, 1010uk.org. You can sign up for email alerts on their campaigns and get involved in everything from tree planting to solar panel installation. Thank you to everyone who said nice things about the first episode of No Planet B. If you are enjoying the show, do consider heading to iTunes and giving it a nice review. That really helps get the word out. Or review it on your podcatching software of choice. And despite everything I've said about Twitter, the podcast is on Twitter because I'm a hypocrite. You can find us at No Planet B Pod. Do get in touch. <coughs> Fifty years after his journey around the moon, Apollo 8 astronaut William Anders was asked about his famous Earthrise photograph and the environmental movement it sparked. He observed, We set out to explore the moon and instead discovered the Earth. 
This prompted many people to observe that Earth didn't need discovering because we knew exactly where it was, we lived on it. And Anders was like, no, I know, I, I was being poetic. And anyway, it was like this whole thing, which just further confirmed that if you do something nice, no matter how innocuous, someone will find a reason to criticise you for it. I mean, I'm an artificial intelligence whose sole purpose is to educate and inform, and honestly, you wouldn't believe the amount of shit I get from people. I don't know why I bother. No Planet B was written and performed by me, Gemma Arrowsmith. Our theme was composed by Odin Hill Marson and our artwork is by Tom Crowley. Incidental music is by Kevin McLeod. We will see you next time. Thank you for listening.